You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today, we're sharing a discussion Tom Vanderark recently had about school networks with Don Shalvey, Deputy Director of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and founder of Aspire Public Schools. Don and Tom both enjoy throwing in a good song reference to help make a point. So let's listen into their conversation on why school networks matter and which of their favorite songs best describe their thoughts. We're talking about school networks today and why they matter. And there just may be a song reference or two in this conversation. God, I, I certainly hope so. Because other than this podcast, I only want to be on Bill Simmons's. And that, <laughs> and that guy never, that, that guy only talks bosses Celtics and not music. So let's get, let's, let's get into it, Tom. I'm thinking about the OJs for starters. What's your favorite OJs song? I I would say it's close between Love Train and Backstabber. I think we need to both of those could be <laughs> themes, both of those could be themes for how school districts and services work together. They smile in your face all the time. They want to take your place, the backstabbers. So you have outlined the theme for this podcast is from Backstabber to Love Train, why it makes sense to work together. Let's do a little bit of backstory. So you were a public school superintendent and had this crazy idea of starting a charter school. Why would anyone do that? Yeah. Well, we certainly didn't need to do it. I would say when I interviewed for this job, which I didn't expect to be interviewing for, I was pretty well signed, sealed, and delivered to be the superintendent in <laughs> Juneau, Alaska, and then got sort of sucked in by a headhunter to go interview in Silicon Valley. And the first question the school board asked me is, we do pretty well here, but our kids and our staff are not having any fun. What would you do to increase the amount of fun the kids and the staff could have in this school district? Well, that's like Jerry McGuire. That's like, that's like when El Zellweger saying, you had me at hello. It was a great question. And so they, yeah. were, they were willing to do this. Like they just want to do something really interesting and innovative in a place that had been, you know, quietly blessed. I thought we needed a purposeful test kitchen. And what better way to do that than to take advantage of this, you know, California charter school law thing, which no one had ever done. You know, up until that time, it was it was one school in Minnesota. So, you know, the San Carlos Charter Learning Center was charter number one in California and the second in the nation, and we did it, you know, basically because I think every good, every good company has an R&D site. And that R&D site was designed to make us smarter and increase the joy we wanted to have as a system. So it was really about lying the family stone, about more hot fun in the summertime. Hot fun in the summertime is exactly what it would be. And that's sort of what we were attempting to do. We were attempting to to do what you often suggest, which is, how do you play in future perfect tense, not how do you yeah. play in the immediate future? Because for us, the two things we really needed 
he was able to do for a variety of reasons was one, just get better at the role technology was going to, you know, was going to play in classrooms. And this was, this was three or four years before we had NetDay and Al Gore came to pull wire in one of our schools in California. And the other thing it was, was we really believed in multi-age instruction and nobody knew how to do it. You know, we really wanted five, six and seven year olds in the same in the same class setting, learning from one another. And, uh, you know, at that time in education, that sounded like combination classes, which were the death knell to elementary teachers. So, you know, why try to force that on anyone? Let's set up a purposeful lab and understand how multi-age instruction could be done well and how, you know, how how technology could improve um, opportunities for young people. It was was definitely an R&D effort. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I would I would say it was, and it was an R and D effort in a in in a pretty interesting way. Some of those things we tried back in those early days, you know, I'd recommend still be done today. So when we when we built the charter, and and we we built the charter as a as a nonprofit that was that was outside our collective bargaining agreement um, because you wanted the maximum amount of flexibility but built in the, the desire to work, you know, as, a, as an R&D site within the system. So we set up the original charter so that there would be two visiting educator roles every year so that teachers in the district who were strong members of our collective bargaining unit could come into the school, teach for a couple of years, and then take what they learned back to their own building. And and continue to be you know on leave from the district and still participating in the you know the activities of their collective bargaining unit and you know it it just it just was so odd and unusual no one took advantage of it but I recommend to this day that if you're gonna if you really want to create some you know, cross-sector synergy in your in your district, you really need to provide those kind of welcome mats that welcome individuals into an R&D site and, and bid them farewell and happy trails when they go back to their building. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of Pat DeClotz in, in Kettle Moraine and the way they've been intentional about starting these micro-school charter schools right inside their, their own buildings, you know, as a district learning project. I yeah. I lost I, sight of that role. Yeah, I think, I think you have two, Tom. I mean, one of the things we explored early on in this work, particularly given California's law was, you know, was smart enough to not define what a school was. It left the door open for clicks and mortars and bricks and mortars was like declare classrooms as charters in multi-sites like yeah. we really so and it was a it was a funny way of thinking about it tom like i i suspect things have changed a bit since then but one of the things i encountered as the new superintendent remember i did this like on my fifth month on the job so it was uh you know get get something done early well as i heard from you know in, in your role in federal way and 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 in my role, anytime you take a new role in a school district, the first people who come to you are the ones that feel like they are the most oppressed. 
And right. the fourth and fifth grade teachers came to me and said, we are the most oppressed. We teach longer than the primary grades. We don't have prep periods like the secondary school teachers. We really need something. And I looked at that thing when we were starting to explore the charter options and said, why don't we just declare all the fourth and fifth grades in the system were in, you know, five or six of the schools in the system. As charters, we could take two or three more kids per classroom. That would, that would increase us about 30 kids overall across the fourth and fifth grades in each of these schools. And then they could hire their own paraprofessionals and get prep time. When the fourth and fifth grade teachers said, this is crazy, and they were all set to do it, and then they couldn't do it in the end. Like, they literally couldn't take advantage of the quality that was there because, it, because in, you know, 1991, that, that was considered outrageous and not ambitious. Right. That's crazy thinking. It's interesting, though. It's the idea of classroom um, charter sites. It reminds me a little bit of we're both fans of Denver Public Schools and uh, their Imaginarium and – it's their internal incubator, and it it is to incubate new schools, district schools, charter schools, but it's also a place where a couple of teachers with a crazy idea can go and get some a little grant and some technical assistance and try it in their in their classroom. So I like the idea of supporting innovations at the classroom level. Yeah, I I do I do as well, Tom, and I, I don't think enough local, you know, community foundations think about this as much. And I, and I also think that we just have such a difficult time pushing back from the sort of one-size-fits-all, don't-create-comparisons stuff that we should just try to get rid of. And, you know, I, I'm actually seeing more, <clears throat> more of that kind of mindset these days, too, you know, which I wish we wouldn't. How do we free people up and celebrate the ideas they have rather than acting like they should only take place in a, you know, in a charter school or a lab school or something else? Like every classroom can be a lab. I mean, we should be celebrating the differences as much as the commonality. Did uh, the school that you start become Aspire Public Schools? It did not, Tom. It yeah, that was the second iteration. I mean, that's that's when we when we changed the law, couldn't do it actually, even if we wanted to, because until 1998, when we got AB 544 passed, is when the law allowed for a single board of directors to provide oversight to multiple charters. Between 1992 and 1998. The law, the charter law in California said for every single school, there would be a single board of directors. If we think it's hard to get quality on 15,000 school boards, imagine if you had to have another, you know, 6,000 individual charter boards, you know, that could do this. That, that was one of the innovations that came out of the law in 1998. That's what allowed us to create Aspire. You know, we had 400 and $3,000 left in the campaign fund and went out to lunch and said, if we've now, you know, lifted the cap off of charters and can create an endless number of them, there ought to be a couple of organizations that are committed to doing it well. And so by that notion, I think, is when we would say the CMO opportunity emerged. 
You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today we're talking with Don Shalvey about the importance of school networks and district charter relations. Earlier, you heard Tom mention Pat DeClotz, superintendent of the Kettle Moraine School District. Pat has done some amazing things in her district, so be sure to check out our podcast with her discussing how she's begun several successful charter schools, improved teacher professional development, and helped to implement multi-age, project-based learning in the majority of her schools in Season 2, Episode 12 of our podcast, titled Kettle Moraine's Pat DeClotz on Building a Culture of Innovation. But back to this podcast, where Tom and Don discuss Aspire, one of the nation's first charter management organizations that Don helped found with entrepreneur Reed Hastings 16 years ago. Their mission was to grow the public charter school movement by opening and operating small, high-quality charter schools in low-income neighborhoods, while also helping these underserved students prepare for college. Don talks more about why their approach to growth and expansion was so successful compared to others during that time. Aspire was one of the first purpose-built networks. Aspire was built to scale from inception. Is that fair? That that is that is very fair, and it's one of those things that that I think in those days gave us a real advantage, Tom. I mean, I I think I think when the when people were exploring this in informal ways, like you would see Norm Atkins doing North Star, and Norm was the principal of the school, and then you'd say go do another one, and there was no infrastructure to do the other one. You just were, you just took on a second job of being the principal of a school and then you were going to grow another one while you were still being the principal of the first one and that's that's pretty much how expansion and growth took place in those days and one of the one of the things i think we were intentional about is let's create a centralized structure that creates quality and growth and doesn't lean on the first, you know, when we open, we open with two. That that doesn't put the emphasis on the two principles to start creating more new schools. Just get good at the school you were doing. While the centralized office, basically three of us, did the, did the growth, expansion, and quality. It's an interesting opportunity to be able to start from scratch and develop a network grid. It's a much different challenge than taking on a district that's got inherited practices and and structures. So why is that purpose-built opportunity so important? Well, I I, I think what it can do, if you you begin to think about the fact that having – that cleansing yourself of existing systems is easier – you know, with a blank sky than, than it is by trying to, to take apart and rebuild. You know, over, over time, we all get convenient around the kinds of things that we, that we do in any system. And then when you start to redo it, you know, I, I would say every time a new superintendent comes or every time a new principal comes on, a, comes on a campus, you know, they're pushing against the things that just don't make sense from their point of view, and you you just have to keep pushing back, and so you never really get to the spot where you wanna you wanna get to because it's it's a constant negotiations it's it's incremental change at best, and given the given given the fact that it's it's really 
you know, you've got this sort of five to seven year turnover with principals. You've got a less of a turnover with superintendents. You never really get there. And so having a structure either within your system that can, that can invent itself or having a model that allows the current structures to see new structures at least helps you. That's what I mean by this, by this notion, Tom, of, of the moment you create something that appears to be outrageous. Anything in between what currently is and that outrageous thing becomes fair game. That's what's interesting about setting up a new structure. And if you set up the new structure so that it actually helps advance the growth and development of the existing structure, like you have a school district, and then you have this thing called the charter organization, and operate cooperatively to make everybody better, then then you've you've expanded the horizons to um, to do things that you couldn't do without the outrageous outlier out there. I, I want to uh, plug your co-founder uh, Reed Hastings, who often talks about the fundamental governance difference between districts and charters. That districts are inherently a political governance system and purpose-built networks are usually nonprofit organizations that have members committed to a mission. And it's much easier to create coherence and sustain it over time when you have a board committed to uh, a mission, right? Reed Reed talks about that frequently. Yeah, he does. Well, I I, I mean, I agree with probably 95% of Reed's position on this. I mean, we talk about common core math standards. You know, I, I, I think you would agree with me. There's, there's that, and then there's superintendent's math. And superintendent's math to me is keeping the two board members that want to fire you away from the three board members that aren't yeah. sure. Like, that's right. real math. And that goes on all the time. And the longer you're there, the, the, the more those odds get stacked against you. You know, that said, I, I think that is much more common in midsize and large urban districts than in smaller places. So, but, in, but in general, I would also say the board that I worked for and was part of at Aspire, I never felt one single day, like any one of those individuals was out to do me harm, personal or professional harm, like never. And, and I would say I rarely felt that in my superintendent's role, but I witnessed it like up close and personal as a deputy superintendent in a couple of places. And it's clear that's how, that's how the political game gets played. So, you know, it's not it's not one hundred percent that way, but in large urban areas, it pretty much is. The focus of our conversation is really about how school districts and charter schools can work together. you You've really made that a focal point of your work in this decade. <laughs> we already outlined the continuum from Axstabber to uh, Love Train. Tell us about the compact cities uh, in, initiative, yeah. What what it is you're trying to encourage with that? Yeah, I'm 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 happy to do that, and actually to to move us off uh, our our song theme. I, I guess there is some. I guess there is a song theme. I I will tell I will tell you the more conventional way in which I describe this. It goes from battleground to peaceful coexistence to common ground, and um, 
you know, I think if we're if we're if we're thinking theme songs, you probably have the theme from Titanic as the common ground location, and peaceful coexistence is more like Diamond Rios, where we meet in the middle, and then you know that that uh, that battleground play could probably be backstabber. And I I would say that over the last five or six years, we have tried to incentivize school districts and charters in those communities to begin to work very closely um, together. There are, I want to say at last count, there are 21 or 22 active agreements that were signed by some most or all of the of the charter community and some district leadership, we have incented $100,000 kind of, you know, commitment to begin to talk, have done an evaluation around it, and and would say that what we have learned from that is it's still a long shot, but we have we have figured out a couple of things that, one, relationships and trust need to occur and they need to flourish over some period of time because that's how these things start. The second thing that seems to accelerate this is a common vexing problem that both the charters and the school districts face. I think an example of that is no district I know, nor charter school or charter network I know, feels like it's doing it's doing what it wants to do for students with disabilities, for foster youth for overage, undercredited, for in-school parents. Like those those vulnerable populations become catalytic focal points for districts and charters. So, you know, a common a common challenge and some sense of building a trusting relationship. Examples I would use, so Spring Branch, uh, independent school district, 32,000, around the rim of Houston Independent took yes prep and kip and the school board basically came out and said when we examine our data we just are not serving african american youth at the secondary level very well like we just we just have historically demonstrated that we don't have the wherewithal the, the skill we may have the will, but we don't have the skill to do that well. So let's go out there and find two organizations that really did. They found KIPP and Yes Prep, and they did two, co-la- two co-located um, middle schools on the Spring Branch campus. And, uh, and they, they invested our dollars and their dollars to, to build strong relationships with the two principals on those buildings and they and they worked a a culture of mutual respect and are learning from one another and i think when you look at what's going on in spring branch you you clearly see what's possible when you uh when you have a compact that starts that way and and is given you know uncanny care and executive championship by the leadership of the school district, including the superintendent and board and the two CMOs. And they now have lived through a superintendent transition and the work is just as strong, if not stronger. So that is clearly one example with a focus on, um, on, on middle school, high school. 
you know, we, we see you mentioned the Denver um, compact work, uh, which was much more of a teacher-to-teacher play. So teachers in charters and teachers in district found common uh, common challenges they were working on and did these in, you know, in small, uh, small communities of teachers, what Achievement First and, and uh, Hartford, um, you know, did, uh, is doing is a whole leadership play where the district was not uh, attracting and bringing in the principles that they wanted to bring in. And that compact, ha- you can't be a principal in Hartford unless you go through Achievement First principal training program. So it's a real asset to the district itself by taking advantage of the enormously talented way they they develop and support principals. So these are examples. You know, I would also say, Tom, that there that there are a few of these that just have never you know, never gotten the traction we anticipated. You know, I would say part of it is you have turnover at the top. It requires real a real investment. Hundred thousand dollars won't do it. We saw more we saw more movement in places where where we invested, you know, two million uh, than we did in the places where we invested a hundred thousand. But you know, that said, we we did a hundred thousand dollar commitment to to Metro Cleveland and what Eric Gordon is is doing there with organizations like Breakthrough is really really promising because they're philosophically. Um, you know, philosophically aligned. You are talking about El Paso, and I think the leadership in El Paso is thinking about doing, you know, the very same thing. And I think part of it has to do with it, with this belief that there have to be good R and D sites. We have to be, we have to be thinking in future perfect tense. It requires unique leaders and probably a unique context for this collaboration to occur because it, it's historically not been a natural act. Right. So it feels like the district either, as you described, it needs a vexing problem or it needs to feel some external pressure in the past that may have been accountability pressure. These days, it, in some cities, there is the inevitability of choice given uh, local philanthropy, right, that, that makes it inevitable that there'll be more charter schools, and sometimes that's what brings people to the table. So it is yeah, a, a bit different in every city, right? It, it is, Tom. There, there's one other area where, where I um, think we, ha- we have seen as a catalytic effect, and I would say that the mayor of a community has potential to be very catalytic and positive about this. So some examples I would use is there would not have been a Boston Compact without Tom Menino getting right. way out in front of this. There would not have been a Philly Compact if it weren't for Michael Nutter. And when those two individuals really pushed hard for this, you know, I'll give you some examples of those are two examples of very interesting compacts because the compacts are not just the charters and district schools. Those are also the non-public schools. So there are a number of non-public schools in the Philly School Partnership and the Boston Compact that participate in, in our funding. You know, because mayors look at this as, they're all my kids. 
and education is quality of life issue. And so, you know, in, in those cases where there, where there is a fairly significant parochial school population in Boston and Philly, the, some of the parochial schools are involved. The, I, I would also put forth that Michael Hancock in Denver has been instrumental in in his support of the district and the uh, the district and the charter schools working together, as has a little community like Central Falls, uh, Rhode Island, where James Dioso, you know, a 27 year old mayor, like got behind this. So, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't discount the role that a strong civic leader can have. You mentioned Boston. Their original portfolio work started with pilot schools inside the district, and we're seeing some of that in Denver, where Denver's Denver's got as many innovation schools, homegrown innovation schools, as it has authorized charters now. Are you you seeing more districts become active in creating innovation schools and then encouraging them to form networks? Yeah, I I am, Tom. I mean, and and I would say I'm seeing these uh, as either innovation zones or empowerment zones. So, you know, Denver is a great example of of an innovation zone. I would say there is an innovation zone in Shelby County, Tennessee. I would also say that what Chris Gabrielli uh, and Empower are doing around empowerment zones um, which is a little bit different I mean they are they're they're all variations on that space in between district tight tight district controls and loose loose you know individual charter school controls they're somewhere in the middle and their governance is somewhere in the middle depends on particular place and whether you're an innovation zone or an empowerment zone. So, you know, the work that you're seeing in Lawrence Mass, you know, is is an example of an empowerment zone where the school board has representation on the governance of the schools in that zone. So I so I think I think what we're seeing is more creative traction between the two sectors than, you know, beyond it. Like what what happens beyond you know the the free market charter space. I don't think we, I don't I don't think we really have explored much. But we, but the infill between the two looks promising in terms of the number of places that are um, that are talking about it. You reminded me of uh, "Keep It Loose, Keep It Tight" by Amos Lee. Uh, I think we got a chance to make it right. Keep it loose. You know, you know, the other thing, Tom, I, I, I would say in, in thinking about the future is uh, we are we are sponsoring a, a two state conversation, which I'm sure you you are probably in the middle of planning of. So in the so in the middle of May, we are doing a West Texas, New Mexico conversation around innovation with a group of funders and Juan Cabrera's leadership in El Paso and Hannah Scandera's leadership at the New Mexico level and looking for ways in which you have regional innovation going on. I don't know what 
I don't know what will emerge at this moment. It's too soon to, to tell. But the very fact that you, you have a kind of cross-state uh, opportunity is particularly interesting given where New Mexico and El Paso sit. So speaking of regional work, I think the most interesting region in the country is New England and the work that the Great Schools Partnership is doing because they're working at the school level, the policy level, and higher ed compact all around proficiency ed. But the weird thing about New England, given our conversation, is there's very few school networks there. Uh, What's that about? I think, A, you have caps in a number of these states. B, these states have been around for a long, long period of time, and they have established patterns that tend to make this this kind of you know charter network play much more difficult to do. I mean, no, it's true. But it, the interesting, there's not even any new tech network district schools up there, and and even though you know Ted Sizer started the coalition there. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and Elliot started big picture there, right? There, right, and and uh, and El has its roots in New England. There are still very few managed or voluntary networks. I I think the schools there they've proven through the Great Schools Partnership that they can do great things together, but they just uh, tend towards loose affiliations rather than uh, the tight affiliations common in other parts of the country. Yeah, no, I know I think I think that's exactly right. I I also think that just geography right. it, geography is a constraint. I mean, l- let me just say I think I think the CMOs that have started cross state work are finding challenges they never expected to see. You know, both with folks who don't like this work staring at is Tennessee money leaving Tennessee and supporting California kids. Like you, you get a lot of that. So I, I mean, we're seeing that with Aspire and Green Dot in Tennessee. And we're seeing with rocket ship, rocket, rocket ship in, you know, Milwaukee and rocket ship in Nashville. I'm watching what Tom Torkelson is going to do when they launch their first out of state idea school in Baton Rouge in the fall. So I was stupid enough in my twenties to, you know, get in a, a raft and go down the Merced river at full melt and had no idea what I was getting into. Neither did the other four or five lunatics that went with me because we had only watched it from above. We got down on that river and that white water that you don't see from the road comes up and we had nothing. We were so ill-equipped and we, you know, we could have could have gotten ourselves killed. Luckily we just got bruised a lot and the frozen water didn't let us know that till after we thawed out. But you know, this is what happens in this, in this space as well. The, the, the first folks who go into this, you know, discover all the things they didn't think about and didn't anticipate, which is why, you know, pioneers and forward observers are pretty important. Do you see more compact work in the future? Or as, as Jack Johnson would say, do you see things getting better it's together? Better when we're together. Mm, it's always better when we're together. I do, but that's because I am a hopeless romantic. 
I mean, I, I, and, and part of the reason why I do, I should, I should put some evidence behind that. We are continuing to see crossover leadership. I, I look and folks call me about, you know, superintendent searches, who do you know, who would you recommend? And the more I look at the job requirements for superintendents these days, particularly in states where there, where, where there are large numbers of charter schools, there's a requirement you never saw five or 10 years ago or 15 years ago for sure, is we want a superintendent who understands how to thrive in a competitive environment. Like, I, I know you didn't see that in the federal way job description, and I didn't see it in the San Carlos and Lodi job descriptions. Like, that was unheard of in those days. Right. And, and now it is part of the condition. So hiring a charter leader to come in and work in a district or vice versa or, you know, demonstrating that there is life after the superintendency besides teaching an administrative course at your local college. Right. you know, creates a synergy we didn't see before. So when you think about future compacts, is it um, joined together by the who come together by the Beatles or more imagined by John Lennon? Oh, my God, Tom. That's, I, I, I have to think it's more imagined at well, you're the, the romantic, moment. Right? I'm the yeah. romantic, yeah. It's my, it's, 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 it's much more imagined, and it's it's much more going to be, you know, seated by a more organized coming. How about canned heat? Wasn't there in that? Let's work together <laughs> as a yeah. as a uh, canned heat song. Not as good as out in the country, but still pretty good. You, you're hoping for uh, a peaches and herb kind of reunited feeling. I think. <laughs> reunited, and it feels so good. Reunited, and it feels so good. Tom, what what a pleasure uh, to sp- to spend time, and uh, I I am I am I am glad that you uh, that you played John Fogarty and put me in, Coach. So it's a pleasure to be on this podcast. All right. Thanks, Don Shelby. Uh, We appreciate your work. All right. Bye, Tom. Good to see you. Take care. Thanks to Don Shelby for speaking with us today and to Tom for another great interview. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat signing off.